Hello and welcome to another episode of Climbing on the Bookshelf. This time I've chosen a rather famous book by a prolific author um, who seems to capture the stories very well in the mountaineering and outdoor world. He is, of course, John Krakauer, who has written many of these books uh, over the years, such as this one, Into Thin Air, um, Under the Banner of Heaven, Iger Dreams, or the other ones, Where Men Win Glory, The Odyssey of Pat Tillman, and of course the book that I have an episode on called Into the Wild, which is actually my most played episode. Um, it's a really great one and one of my favourites. I've selected a few extracts from the book Into Thin Air, which I think you'll enjoy. Um, I've tried my best, but please forgive my possible mispronunciations of any of the names I read out, as I'm sure some of them are wrong. So please bear with me. Uh, I'll just play my, my selected extracts. In March 1996, Outside Magazine sent me to Nepal to participate in and write about a guided ascent of Mount Everest. I went as one of eight clients on an expedition led by a well-known guide from New Zealand named Rob Hall. On May the 10th, I arrived on top of the mountain, but the summit came at a terrible cost. Among my five teammates who reached the top, four, including Hall, perished in a rogue storm that blew in without warning while we were still high on the peak. By the time I descended to base camp, nine climbers from four expeditions were dead, and three more lives would be lost before the month was out. The expedition left me badly shaken, and the article was difficult to write. Nevertheless, five weeks after I returned from Nepal, I delivered a manuscript to Outside, and it was published in the September issue of the magazine. Upon its completion, I attempted to put Everest out of my mind and get on with my life, but that turned out to be impossible. Through the fog of messy emotions, I continued trying to make sense of what had happened up there, and I ob obsessively mulled the circumstances of my companions' deaths. The outside piece was as accurate as I could make it under the circumstances, but my deadline had been unforgiving. The sequence of events had been frustratingly complex, and the memories of the survivors had been badly distorted by exhaustion, oxygen depletion and shock. At one point during my research, I asked three other people to recount an incident all four of us had witnessed high on the mountain, and none of us could agree on such crucial facts as the time what had been said, or even who had been present. Within days after the outside article went to press, I discovered that a few of the details I'd reported were in error. Most were minor inaccuracies, of the sort that inevitably creep into works of deadline journalism, but one of my blunders was in no sense minor, and it had had a devastating impact on my friends and family of one of the victims. Only slightly less disconcerting than the article's factual errors was the material that necessarily had to be omitted for a lack of space. Mark Bryant, the editor of Outside, and Larry Burke, the publisher, had given me an extraordinary amount of room to tell the story. They ran the piece at 17,000 words, four or five times as long as a typical magazine feature. Even so, I felt that it was much too abbreviated to do justice to the tragedy. The Everest climb had rocked my life to its core, and it became desperately important for me to record the events in complete detail, unconstrained by a limited number of column inches. This book is the fruit of that compulsion. The staggering unreliability of the human mind at high altitude made the research problematic. <laughs> 
To avoid relying excessively on my own perceptions, I interviewed most of the protagonists at great length and on multiple occasions. When possible, I also corroborated details with radio logs maintained by people at base camp, where clear thought wasn't in such short supply. Readers familiar with outside article may notice discrepancies between certain details, primarily matters of time, reported in the magazine and those reported in the book. The revisions reflect new information that has come to light since publication of the magazine piece. Several authors and editors I respect counselled me not to write the book as quickly as I did. They urged me to wait two or three years and put some distance between me and the expedition in order to gain some crucial... I thought that writing the book might purge Everest from my life. It hasn't, of course. Moreover, I agree the readers are more poorly served when an author writes as an act of catharsis, as I have done here. But I hoped something would be gained by spilling my soul in the calamity's immediate aftermath, in the royal and torment of the moment. I wanted my account to have a raw, ruthless sort of honesty that seemed in danger of leeching away with the passage of time and the dissipation of anguish. Some of the same people who warned me against writing hastily had also cautioned me against going to Everest in the first place. There were many, many fine reasons not to go, but attempting to climb Everest is an intrinsically irrational act, a triumph of desire over sensibility. Any person who would seriously consider it almost by definition beyond the sway of reasoned argument. The plain truth is that I know better, but went to Everest anyway. And in doing so, I was party to the death of good people, which is something that is apt to remain on my conscience for a very long time. Camp 1 The slopes of Everest did not lack for dreamers in the spring of 1996. The credentials of many who'd come to climb the mountain were as thin as mine, or thinner. When it came time for each of us to assess our abilities and weigh them against the formidable challenges of the world's highest mountain, it sometimes seemed though half the population at base camp was clinically delusional. But perhaps this shouldn't have come as a surprise. Everest has always been a magnet for cooks, publicity seekers, hopeless romantics, and others with a shaky hold on reality. In March 1947, a poverty-stricken Canadian engineer named Earl Denman, arriving in Darjeeling and announced his intention to climb Everest, despite the fact he had little mountaineering experience and lacked official permission to enter Tibet. Somehow, he managed to convince two Sherpas to accompany him, Ang Dawa and Tenzing Norgay. Tenzing, the same man who would later make the first ascent of Everest with Hillary, had immigrated to Darjeeling from Nepal in 1933 as a 17-year-old. Hoping to be hired by an expedition departing for the peak that spring under the leadership of an eminent British mountaineer named Eric Shipton. The eager young Sherpa wasn't chosen that year, but he remained in India and was hired by Shipton for the 1935 British Everest expedition. By the time he agreed to go with Denman in 1947, Tenzing had already been on the Great Mountain three times. He later conceded that he knew all along Denman's plans were foolhardy but Tenzing too was powerless to resist the pull of Everest. The Summit Scott Fisher ascended the summit around 3.40 on the afternoon of May the 10th to find his devoted friend and Sirdar Lopsang Jangbu waiting for him. The Sherpa pulled his radio from inside his down jacket, made contact with Ingrid Hunt at base camp, then handed the walkie-talkie to Fisher. We all made it! 
Fisher told Hunt, 11,400 feet below. God, I'm tired. A few minutes later, Makalu Gao for Doug Hansen to appear as a rising tide of cloud lapped ominously at the summit ridge. According to Lobsang, during the 15 or 20 minutes Fisher spent on the summit, he complained repeatedly that he wasn't feeling well. Something the congenitally stoic guide almost never did. Scott, tell to me. I am too tired. I am sick. Also, need medicine for stomach, the Sherpa recalls. I gave him tea, but he drank just a little bit, just half cup. So I tell to him, Scott, please, we go fast down. So we come down then. Fisher started down first, about 3.55. Lopsang reports that all was more than three quarters full when he left the summit. For some reason, he took his mask off and stopped using it. Shortly after Fisher left the top, Gao and his Sherpas departed as well, and finally Lopsang headed down, leaving Hall alone on the summit awaiting Hansen. A moment after Lopsang started down, about four o'clock, Hansen at last appeared, toughing it out, moving painfully slowly over the last bump on the ridge. As soon as he saw Hansen, Hall hurried down to meet him. Didn't he turn Hansen around much lower on the mountain, as soon as it became obvious that the American climber was running late? Exactly one year earlier, and to be denied so close to the top was a crushing disappointment to Hansen. He told me several times that he'd returned to Everest in 96. He said Rob had called him from New Zealand a dozen times, urging him to give it another shot. And this time, Doug was absolutely determined to bag the top. I want to get this thing done and out of my life, he told me three days earlier at Camp 2. I don't want to have to come back here. I'm getting too old for this. It doesn't seem far-fetched to speculate that... Because Hall had taken Hansen into coming back to Everest, it would have been especially hard for him to deny Hansen the summit a second time. It's very difficult to turn someone around high on the mountain, cautions Guy Cotter, a New Zealand guide who summited Everest with Hall in 92, and was guiding the peak for him in 95 when Hansen made his first attempt. If a client sees that the summit is close and they're dead set on getting there, they're going to have to laugh in your face and keep going up. As a veteran, after the disastrous events on Everest, we think that people pay us to make good decisions, but what people really pay for is to get to the top. In any case, Hall did not turn Hansen around at 2pm, or for that matter at 4. When he met his client just below the top, instead, according to Lopsang, Hall placed Hansen's arm around his neck and assisted the weary client up the final 40 feet to the summit. They stayed only a minute or two, then turned to begin the long descent. When Lopsang saw that Hansen was faltering, he held up his own descent long enough to make sure that Doug and Rob had made it safely across a dangerously corniced area just below the top. Then, eager to catch Fisher, who was by now more than 30 minutes ahead of him, the Sherpa continued down the ridge, leaving Hansen and Hall at the top of the Hillary Step. Just after Lopsang disappeared down the step, Hansen apparently ran out of oxygen and foundered. He'd expended every last bit of his strength to reach the summit and now there was nothing left in reserve for the descent. Pretty much the same thing happened to Doug in 95, said Ed Voisters, who, like Cotter, was guiding the peak for Hall that year. He was fine during the ascent, but as soon as he started down, he lost it mentally and physically. He turned into a zombie, like he'd used everything up. At 4.30pm, and again at 4.41, Hall got on the radio to say that he and Hansen were in trouble high on the summit ridge and urgently needed oxygen. Two full bottles were waiting for them at the south summit. If Hall had known this, he could have retrieved the gas fairly quickly and then climbed back up to give Hansen a fresh tank. 
but Andy Harris, still had the oxygen cache in the throes of his hypoxic dementia, overheard these radio calls and broke in to tell Hall, incorrectly, just as he'd told Mike Groom and me that all the bottles at the South Summit were empty. Groom had heard the conversation between Harris and Hall on his radio and he was descending the southeast ridge with the Asuka Namba just above the balcony. He tried to call Hall to correct misinformation and let him know that there were in fact full oxygen canisters waiting for him on the south summit, but Groom explains, My radio was malfunctioning. I was able to receive most calls, but my outgoing calls could rarely be heard by anyone. On the couple of occasions that my calls were being picked up by Rob and I tried to tell him where the full cylinders were, I was immediately interrupted by Andy, transmitting to say that there was no gas at the south summit. Unsure whether there was oxygen waiting for him, Hall decided that the best course of action was to remain with Hansen and try to bring the nearly helpless client down without gas. But when they got to the top of the Hillary step, Hall couldn't get Hansen down the 40-foot vertical drop and their progress ground to a halt. Shortly before five, Groom finally managed to get through to Hall and communicate that there actually was oxygen on the south summit. Fifteen minutes later, Lopsang arrived at the south summit on his way down from the top and encountered Harris. At this point, according to Lopsang, Harris must have finally understood that at least two of the oxygen canisters stashed there were full, because he pleaded with the Sherpa to help him carry the life-sustaining gas up to Hall and Hansen on the Hillary step. Andy says he will pay me $500 to bring oxygen to Rob and Doug, Lopsang recalls. But I am supposed to take care of just my group. I have to take care of Scott. So I say to Andy, no, I go fast down. At 5.30, as Lopsang left the south summit to resume his descent, he turned to see Harris, who must have been severely debilitated, if his condition, when I'd seen him on the south summit two hours earlier, was any indication plodding slowly up the summit ridge to assist Hall and Hansen. It was an act of heroism that would cost Harris his life. A few hundred feet below, Scott Fisher was struggling down the southeast ridge, growing weaker and weaker, upon reaching the top of the rock steps at 28,400 feet. He was confronted with a series of short but troublesome rappels that angled along the ridge. Too exhausted to cope with the complexities of the rope work, Fisher slid directly down the adjacent snow slope on his butt, this was easier than following the fixed lines, but once he was below the level of the rock steps, it meant that he had to make a laborious 330-foot rising traverse through knee-deep snow to regain the route. Tim Madsen, descending with Beadleman's group, happened to glance up from the balcony around 5.20 and saw Fisher as he began to traverse. He looked really tired, Madsen remembers. He'd take 10 steps, then sit and rest, take a couple more steps, rest again. He was moving real slow but I could see Lopsang above him, coming down the ridge, and I figured, shoot, with Lopsang there to look after him, Scott would be okay. According to Lopsang, the Sherpa caught up with Fisher about 6pm, just above the balcony. Scott is not using oxygen, so I put mask on him, he says. I am very sick, too sick to go down, I am going to jump. He is saying many times, acting like crazy man, so I tie him on rope, quickly, otherwise he is jumping down into Tibet. Securing Fisher with a 75-foot length of rope, Lopsang persuaded his friend not to jump and then got him moving slowly towards the south col. The storm is very bad now, Lopsang recalls. Boom! Boom! Two times like the sound of a gun, there is big thunder. Two times lightning hit very close to me and Scott, very loud, very scared. 
300 feet below the balcony, the gentle snow gully they'd been gingerly descending gave way to outcroppings of loose, steep shale, and Fisher was unable to handle the challenging terrain of his ailing condition. Scott cannot walk now. I have big problem, says Lopsang. I try to carry, but I am also very tired. Scott is big body. I am very small. I cannot carry him. He tell to me, Lopsang, you go down, you go down. I tell to him, no, I stay together here with you. About 8pm, Lopsang was huddling with Fisher on a snow-covered ledge when Makalu Gao and his two Sherpas appeared out of the howling blizzard. Gao was nearly as debilitated as Fisher and was likewise unable to descend the difficult bands of shale. So his Sherpas sat the Taiwanese climber beside Lopsang and Fisher and then continued down without him. I stay with Scott and Makalu one hour, maybe longer, says Lopsang. I am very cold, very tired. Scott tell to me, you go down and send up Anatoly. So I say, okay, I go down. I send quick Sherpa up and Anatoly. Then I make good place for Scott and go down. Lopsang left Fisher and Gao on the ledge, 1200 feet above the South Col, and fought his way down through the storm. Unable to see, he got far off the route towards the west, ended up below the level of the Col before he realised his error, and was forced to climb back up the northern margin of the Lotsi face to locate Camp 4. Around midnight, nevertheless, he made it to safely. I go to Anatoly tent, reported Lopsang. I tell to Anatoly, please you go up. Scott is very sick, he cannot walk. Then I go to my tent, just fall asleep, sleep like dead person. Arriving at the bottom of the Kumbu Icefall on Monday morning, May the 13th, I came down the final slope to find Ang Sering, Guy Cotter and Caroline McKenzie waiting for me at the edge of the glacier. Guy handed me a beer, Caroline gave me a hug, and the next thing I knew I was sitting on the ice with my face in my hands and tears streaking my cheeks, weeping like I hadn't wept since I was a small boy. Safe now, the crushing strain of the preceding days lifted from my shoulders, I cried for my lost companions, I cried because I was grateful to be alive, I cried because I felt terrible for having survived while others had died. If you think you've been inspired by what I've read out and would like to know more about what happened, either you can buy the book from the publisher on the episode details, uh, I've left a link on there via the Pan Macmillan site, so thank you Pan Macmillan for that for the permission to read out the extracts um, or you can do some of your own digging around and research into what happened um, as there are numerous accounts that were written and reported about the tragedy in 1996. Also can I just mention I would really appreciate a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast or wherever you're listening from um, as it really helps my show get noticed more. Thank you so much for listening. It really is appreciated and it helps and motivates me to do more of the same sort of episodes. Um, and that's about it for this time. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Climbing on the Bookshelf. <laughs>